This is sort of random, but back in the spring of 1994, when I was the editor of the student newspaper at Delaware, a guy named Neil Lapman submitted a story about an assistant football coach leaving UD and taking a job at West Virginia. The piece he handed in was all about David Lockwood, the coach, and how excited he was to go to the Mountaineers. The part he left out, however, was the biggest storyline. With Lockwood's departure, the entire university was down to one African-American coach. So I left Lapmer's byline, but changed the lead to, the university lost one of its two full-time African-American coaches Wednesday when the football assistant David Lockwood resigned after four years. The next day, Lapman called me furious. That's not what I wrote, he said. Why'd you change the focus? My answer was simple. In newspaper, you can't overlook the news. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Virginia Heffernan, the exceptional Los Angeles Times and Wired columnist, whose recent piece, What Can You Do About the Trumpites Next Door, resulted in the world's biggest douchebag, Fox News' Tucker Carlson, sicking the hounds on her. This is episode number 204, Let's Sling Some Yang. All right, Virginia, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. You have established already that you have no idea who Bo Jackson is. I just want you to know is a is a mark off on this podcast. I have to deduct three points from this episode, whatever. Uh, wait, I thought you said you liked my honesty. <laughs> I do. Actually. I've written nine books about athletes. Not only has my mom read none of them, she has never heard of anyone I wrote Brett Favre's biography. Virginia, do you know who Brett Favre is? <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. My mom kept saying, is it Barry Favor? Who I keep trying to tell my friends who you're writing about. I think, no, it's Brett Favre. So. I think that's good. I think like a little mystery to your parents is exactly where a writer should be. Did your parents read your book? Uh, yes, they did. They're both writers themselves. And so they keep religiously on top of what I write. In fact, I just appeared... Having written about West Virginia, my mother's from Appalachia, I just um, was on MSNBC with my mother talking about um, Appalachia. So I'm the opposite of what I just described to you. Now, I didn't see this going this way, but I just want to say, and I don't know if you've experienced this. So one of my good friends is a correspondent for 60 Minutes. And Mm -hmm. my mom views him as the ultimate success in life because he's on TV. Yes. He's very successful and he's on TV. Yeah. I feel like I could write 10,000 books win a Pulitzer. And if I'm not, and a- we have that too, actually, the, we, what we have is my mom is like, you've got to start doing something else because nobody listens to podcasts. Cause like you, I have a podcast, nobody. And then I said, um, I said, well, you know, it gets some sufficient, you know, it gets this number of downloads. So that's pretty good. And she was like, Ann Reeves doesn't listen to it. Every mom has their Ann Reeves. Yes. Who's just like, that's the person that they test you out on. And if Ann Reeves doesn't care about your podcast, then like, what are you doing with your life? The Jewish mom list in my house is, are you a doctor? No. Are you a lawyer? No. Are you on TV? No. Failure. Yeah. Nothing below that. Yeah. No. I think that's good. All right. So I was reading a, a really excellent New York Times piece last week, and it was talking about people basically who have been, these savages have gone after because of Tucker Carlson. And your name was in it. Oh, yeah. Related to a piece you wrote, a column for the LA Times called What Can You Do About the Trumpites Next Door? Mm-hmm. It's my favorite column of the year. It truly is ah. my favorite column of the year. A bunch of months ago, we had new neighbors move in. And 
day one they were here, they put up a Blue Lives Matter flag, day one. And I was like, oh. right. And yeah. they're incredibly nice. They're friendly, they're awesome. Damn they're, it. They're Packer fans. And the woman walked by me one day. I didn't even know she knew my name and said, Jeff, I'm reading your Brett Favre book. It's great. And I was like, fucking fuck, fuck. You wrote this column. It's called, yeah. what can you do about the Trumpites next door? And I love this column. I love this column. Randy LA Times, your lead is, <laughs> your lead is, oh, heck no. The Trumpites next door to our pandemic getaway who seem as devoted to the ex-president as you can get without being Q fans, just plowed our driveway without being asked and did a great job. How am I going to resist demands for unity in the face of this act of aggressive niceness? Of course, on some mm. level, I realize I owe them thanks. And man, it really looks like the guy backdragged the driveway like a pro, but how much thanks. <laughs> These neighbors are staunch partisans of blue lives and there aren't a lot of anything other than white lives in the neighborhood. And it's a great, great, great piece. How much of this is satire and how much of it is reality? That's a good question. It's always when I can't, I don't, can't quite decide whether I'm writing satire or not that I end up getting trolled because I, I can't quite commit to something. And so like the, as the piece goes on, it gets more and more sincere until it ends on a note of almost embarrassing earnestness where I'm like, we must work together shoulder to shoulder for peace and justice. And it sort of loses the bite of the top. But I think that's because I hadn't worked it out yet. I almost in that piece solicited reader feedback on making kind of peace with neighbors you disagree with in purple neighborhoods like you have. Like it is super interesting to set up next to. And I talked to a Southern um, Christian who'd written some very, uh, had a very aggressive take on and disliking that piece. And I said, you know, you have an abortion doctor next door and he, you know, has signs up supporting the National Abortion Rights Action League. Um, what do you do? And he said, or I actually said a woman, and he, what do you do if she comes over and like, you know, has baked, baked you cookies? And he said, well, like a good old Southern hypocrisy goes a long way here. I just like thank her and then slag her off behind her back. Like, what's wrong with you Northerners? You know, you have to like integrate everything. No, you're really nice to their face. And then you talk about what a monster they are behind their backs. That's pretty much what, you know, you end up doing in the neighborhood. I'm sure with your Blue Lives Matter person who read your book, you, you know, what, you're not going to say hello when they pass by. You're not going to help them if they need a jump start. I guess you don't need those in Orange, Orange County, but, no. uh, you know any kind of yard work, you're not going to whatever, um, help give them some mulch, all those things. So there's so much, just so much more to say about it because conservatives, especially churchy Pete Flanders kind of neighbors, you know, are known for their like highly, highly ho Homer and like, you know, being super nice. And I'm not at that nice. I'm also like, what are you trying to put me in your debt by, you know, plowing my drive? Did you really think that? You know? Was there a part of you that was skeptical of their motives? The guy did plow your fucking driveway, which is no small task. It's not like he just made cookies. I will say for what it's worth, he just is one of, like one of the people up here who has a plow on his truck and it was mostly shoveled. So he just like went in a little bit. He might've even been trying to turn around, but it was still helpful. I like it that you're laughing. Um, baking cookies is a pain, but baking cookies takes hours. I mean, it depends um, if you're doing it from scratch or you just, if you're doing a toll house mix, that's a, that's 15 minutes investment. But if you're doing it from scratch, absolutely true. Minutes. True, true. Did I actually think it was an act of aggression? No, I did not. On the other hand, there's some complexities because the family has issues with child protective services and a couple other kind of domestic issues that tend to go hand in hand with gun owners and ATV drivers and whatever, they have guns. So 
one thing I, I don't think that like people who think this is these things are merely political disputes get is that a lot of our right wing neighbors have guns and are very clear about having guns and have like liberal tears stickers and like peace love and goodness and if not I'm going to lock and load just expressions that are like I don't know borderline death threats you know Wait, I gotta and ask you something because I've had this happen so many times to me that my wife is like are you ever going to learn from this and I never do where I write about a neighbor or I write about someone a teacher or someone yeah and I'm like they're never going to see it oh, knock 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 it. Isn't Snowplow Man gonna come over to your house at some point and not have cookies and just- Well, like, by the way, then I was like, not only do I have to be grateful to him, but pretty soon I'm gonna have to apologize to him because it brought way too much heat to you know the neighborhood and people were very focused on where I lived and how much they loved the neighbor. And, you know, but, it, but someone else said it was narking or snitching. In fact, <laughs> he just got a lot of supporters like, he probably had people, I mean, they said they wanted to like send him gun and that they would come and like plow me in or whatever um, to, you know, help him out. I mean, the response was very angry. So it wasn't like I turned in my neighbor for his badness. It turned out I turned in myself for being so squirrely about saying thank you. The big thing is, and I think this is where we get to, you know, if you're extremely online, if you're a writer like you or in the media, um, you know, you think these things are consequential and they had no, they didn't even get near uh, learning about it. So I told a mutual friend about it, who's also in the neighborhood and who's friends with them. I said, you know, now I'm just so sorry because if they're getting any kind of mail or disruption because of this, she said, I think they'll understand that it's your work. And she said, but the way we'll know is in the next snowstorm if they plow again. Right. And so we were, she was like, I'll try to ask, but you know, I might not be able to ask. So we waited next snowstorm. I was like, oh God, if he doesn't do it and bless him, if he doesn't do it, because you know, I was like saying nothing, but how ungrateful I am, then I'll know. And I'm going to have to start making some kind of amends to this guy. And, um, he did it. Wow. So serious he question. Didn't read it. Yeah. Does this make you the asshole? Exactly. That's what I, a total A-M-T-A, right? Like I was, hey, wait, no, that's not A-I-T-A. I, right? Yeah. What is an A-I-T-A? Isn't that, am I the asshole? Oh yeah. Are you like, the asshole? Asked, right. Yeah. So um, I, that's kind of what I wanted to ask in the article, which is like, as these disputes cool off after the resounding victory of Joe Biden, and these other things, you know, am I now holding a grudge or am I staying true to my principles? So am I the asshole or, or, you know, or am I like, do I have integrity? And I honestly didn't know. I mean, that's why I sort of wrote the piece, but indecisive pieces, pieces that are slightly satirical, they can land really wrong with people looking to do a, mount a troll campaign and, and stage a culture war, you know? This is my 204th episode of this podcast. And I feel like I have found my sibling at this moment. I swear to God, this is my life. This is me. I do this to myself all the time where I write <laughs> something about someone from my hometown, from my high school. Oh yeah. And then the person knock, knock, knock or a phone or an email. Yeah. And I'm like, why did I do that? What the hell is I doing? But I can't help myself because at the end of the day, I convince myself this is good writing and this is what you're supposed yes. to do. Right. And like, and also that like writers are ruthless because when you're in the arrogance of writing, 
you're just like, I got to make this point and I have deadline and I, you know, whatever. And then you just become a person again. And you're like, why am I such a dick that I have to like always make my points, whether it means using the people around me, stealing ideas from my mom, uncredited, all kinds of like little slights of hand when you're on deadline that you think are justified and like the hangover later. My kids are especially mad. I mean, I think my son has made it like we cannot go on in this relationship if you ever invoke me again. Wait, I have to say, I'm actually being serious about this. You went to Virginia, I went to Delaware, geographically similar areas. Yep. You yep. started the fact checker at the New Yorker. I started as a fact checker at Sports Illustrated. We're both sitting in shithole offices, it appears. Yours looks nicer than yep. mine, but mine is no good. Nope. And we both can't help ourselves calling people out and then feeling the regret and pain of that. All right, give me, do you have a most awkward where someone's like, were you talking about me? And you're yes. like- Yes. Okay, really good friend of mine with a super smart daughter who's now at Yale. When she was applying to college, she had me look over her essay, which is completely normal and fine. Like this is a girl I like babysat for all the time. I was close to. I looked over her essay and, you know, she got me like a gift certificate to Pan Quotidian that was lovely. And it, the essay didn't take that much work. Did you get the bread basket? Fucking bread basket. Oh, totally. Which is like a side thing, but is in fact, you can just devour, like mutilate it. So good. And I think I was on Trumpcast. I was talking about cheating and I said, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell where cheating is. I mean, parents ask me all the time to read over stuff by their kids. And sometimes I end up writing a lot of it. Okay. So this friend of mine, I'm really close to, and she, her, this essay didn't take that much work, but you can already hear me defensively backpedaling. This is my best friend. That's the kind of thing that could really split up a friendship. But when I said it, I just remember being like, I'm just going to make the biggest version of this point. And then when I was talking to her, you could hear it in my voice. I was super defensive. I was just like, no, 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 her essay's crazy. And then, you know, tossing and turning at night of like, do I have no milk of human kindness? Like, what the fuck is wrong with me? You too? I can kill that story. Okay, let's hear it. I wrote a column for CNN.com about 10 years ago about why I hate Super Bowl parties. And I do, I hate Super Bowl parties. And okay. I wrote about a Super Bowl party I'd been to the year before. And I wrote about how there's always the one obnoxious guy who has to tell you how he knows every play that's coming and blah, blah, blah. And I yeah. basically just changed the guy's name, but quoted the guy from the party the year before. And I was like, he's never gonna see it. I was in my head, he's yeah. never gonna see it. Literally wrote it for CNN.com, which definitely has a pretty solid readership. I get a call from the guy whose house I was at. And he's like, "Was were you writing about Steve? And I was like, uh. <laughs> and then I had to see him like two weeks later at a bar mitzvah. It was <laughs> mortifying. More, I still oh my let God. that one down, yeah. Did you find some way to say, oh, that was a composite or I do I, that myself. I mean, I would do anything to throw it off. I hate to admit it. I think at first I pretended it wasn't him and it was just so painfully obvious it was him. That I just right. apologize. And he and his wife have never spoken to me since. Not that we were close friends, but we have not said a word since. Do you remember in Lolita, um, which is like there's a new podcast about, so I'm newly interested in, but um, when Humbert Humbert's diaries are found and they're just like, my nymph Lolita, by, and she's beautiful and great, by her mother. 
what he says is, no, it's for a novel. No, it's for a novel. <laughs> Since you didn't know Bo Jackson, I'm going to admit I never read Lolita. So he's just writing his like lust for this little girl in his oh, journals, the main lechy pedophile. And then when her mother finds it, his excuse, which we should have made, you should have made it to, to the Steve guy and I should have made it to my friend. Just notes for a novel, notes for a novel, notes for a novel. Like I'm just writing fiction. It's nothing reality. That's you know, awesome. just like try to obscure, yeah, defensive backpedaling the best. Right. No, I, I, I think part of that could be that if you were writing about, you were writing about sports and I was writing about television in the beginning. And both of those things, you kind of get this feeling that you're such a little, like a disempowered David to the Goliath of the thing you're writing about, that you're like, these rocks never going to land. Like if you just are like, Brent Favre seems like, you know, to like have a head of cement. He's the dumbest person I've ever seen. You're just like, these people can't be hurt by it. Right. Because right? I, And I was just like, I'm not going to, you can't in television be the butcher of Broadway. Like you can't close Two and a Half Men by writing a bad review of it because Two and a Half Men is a juggernaut, has all these whatever. So that allows us to chip off jokes at people's expense, thinking nothing can hurt. We can never hurt them because they're not flesh and blood. And they're so much richer and better than we are anyway, that no one's going to think like, oh, the, you know, scary media elite of the um, sports writers. And also we play fast and loose with the language. They double as humor columns. And so you just start to think you're just, you know, you're writing like silly WordPress blog posts in the 90s still and fail to take into account that like you could do actual damage. I agree with everything you just said. I like how we do that. And yet someone gives one of our books a three-star review on Amazon. We're like, what the? Oh my what? God. What? Right. What did I do ever do to you? What, you know, you didn't even read the end. No. Oh, by the way, have you ever gone so far as to report to Amazon bad reviews? Like you're no. like, this is a very badly written review. I mean, it's like super sad. He was just going but, through my brain right now. Wait, I can do that? You can also vote them down. I mean, it's totally pathetic. Uh, yes, we, we are, we become the, like the sensitive ones. It's totally true. I mean, I'm imagining you become less willing to throw punches as you are not punching so far up as you used to, right? Like just, I, I mean, I love young sports writers on newspaper desks or like in local, in local towns where they can just be so mean, but you know, then you end up, if you're on ESPN or you're writing a book, you're probably less likely to slag off your subject. Wait, that's a really right? interesting point. I wasn't even gonna go into. We are in different fields, but we're in the same age category, blah, 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 both 90s graduates of college. I am definitely less mean than I was. Absolutely. Today. Are you the same? Yeah, I mean, I think that one is that the tone of journalism has changed. I mean, people think that Twitter is really, really mean, but they don't know from me until they read like Dale Peck hatchet jobs. Remember sometimes like people would just decide to take someone apart. It was why like Dave Eggers formed this anti-snark believer magazine, you know, because like everyone was writing like a sports writer, snickering at books, at poetry, at restaurants. Do you think that's because we went soft and we're like, oh, maybe that person could give me a job. So I'm not going to say too much against Jeff Zucker. Or is it because we kind of are humans among humans in a better way now? I just think when you're younger, you lack sensitivity. And you, I think there's something to be said for at least being aware that, like I no longer, I will not write a Yelp review unless someone is a complete and total asshole to me, or I literally see someone spitting on a hamburger. 
I'm not going to yeah. write a negative Yelp review of a restaurant because I know someone yeah. who owns that restaurant is fighting to make it. And I don't want to be the yeah. reason their restaurant closes. I did not have that yeah. in my head when I was 28 years old, that sort of thing. What if you saw your allegiances with the diners at the restaurant and not with the entrepreneur? So like when I was writing, I remember this one thing at the New York Times, I was reviewing a show on the WB. Network. High quality. High quality. I think they might've had the OC or something. And in this piece, the original version of the piece, I said, fortunately, comma, the WB has not done X, Y, Z. And my editor wanted to change it to fortunately for the WB. I was like, no, the WB is imposing something on us or like, you know, asking us to be interested in something. So I, any fortune or good fortune is only for the viewer. I don't care about the stakes for the WB, right? right? So like, if you're writing about the NFL, you don't, you shouldn't be caring about the NFL's profit. You should be caring about whatever you sports people care about, good hockey or whatever. I agree with you, but I'm saying yeah. like, if I'm going to a Johnny Rockets, I don't mind tearing yep. apart a Johnny Rockets because it's owned by some okay. conglomerate that owns another right. conglomerate. Right. If I'm going right. to Sal's Pizza and Sal has put his life savings into this pizza place and the pizza mm -hmm. comes out slightly cold. Yeah. Do I really want to cause injury to Sal because my slice of pizza came out cold? I do not. But are we the, just the age where we're siding with Sal and not Mookie? or Sal and not, not bugging out, like the patrons of the place. You know, you start to be like, oh, that guy is old and he put his life savings in things. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. But I think I have, like you, started to be more sympathetic to the authors than to the readers, you know, and not be like, oh, you're wasting everybody's time with this book or you're wasting everybody's time with this television show. But I think maybe that's just a natural growing up. I don't want to say that it's 100% because we're, more humane than we used to be as like snickering adolescents. Okay, I'll tell you something where I've changed drastically. Let's say another writer is racist. I will take on his point or her point. If someone is anti-Semitic, yeah. if someone is an asshole, it expresses stuff yeah. in a cruel way. I will never, ever call someone a bad writer. I will never, mm. never, I won't do it. I won't do it. Yeah. This shit is so freaking hard. And that I've really changed. I, would I will not write a book review ever again. I'm just not doing it. I'm not doing book reviews. Yeah. Because I'm yeah. not taking, I'm not slamming someone's book. That is an area where I've changed drastically. I'm just not doing it. Yeah, that is a really good point. I'm in general, I'm pro-cancellation because you know, you you want to be different than other people. <laughs> and also I think cancellation is a really interesting dynamic that like that does keep powerful people on their toes. And I've been canceled, so I feel like it and it kept me on my toes. But I do think that sports writers, critics, op-ed writers who are paid to take outrageous positions and write provocations. Um, you know, if one time they slip, that seems okay. It's an occupational hazard. There's no insurance against it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just got like massively trolled. And if I worked at a right-wing place that, you know, really didn't like my article in the LA Times, and, and took seriously the criticism of it, which was like, I was inhumane, I was loathsome. If they listened to Tucker Carlson and fired me, then they would be sort of failing to realize that I'm in a pretty risky position. You know that Liz Fair song, like they egg me on, mm -hmm. like to see how wild I can be or something as the line. And I sometimes I'm like, there's so much good and freeing about being an op-ed writer. On the other hand, uh, some weeks, I'm just like, what if I had nothing to say? What if I had no aggro position to take? And then I have to like get myself 
psyched up like a boxer and you know that I'm gonna like one in ten times do it wrong or one in a hundred times do it wrong seems kind of inevitable first of all I want to speak on your behalf I'm gonna be your representative okay okay please you will not say I would like to say on behalf of Virginia to Tucker Carlson I would like to say fuck you you fucking douchebag okay I just want to say that and I love how he said about you after that column that I loved, how he said, she has no useful skills. She not, does not do anything. And I just want to say to Tucker Carlson directly, as someone who has appeared on TV to my mom's pride every now and then, as someone who has actually appeared on Fox News before as a guest, regretfully, you stare at a camera and you talk. That is your big skill. Are you fucking kidding me? The audacity of that drove me insane. I, I love how in TV, they're the talent. The talent talks into a camera. That is not such a talent. And now that I got that rant over, what is it like to be the subject of such hostilities in a very public way and in a very threatening way? Does it, does it feel real and does it feel scary? Or is there a little bit of a distance and you're like, this sucks, but I know the likelihood something happens isn't super great. Um, the second. In fact, I sort of, the focus on the like gendered threat and, you know, whatever kind of misogyny is involved in it, or if you're a person that gets lynching imagery, the racism or or if you get um, death camps and Holocaust stuff, the anti-Semitism is sort of beside the point. Like these are coordinated campaigns and whatever is seemingly true of you or is true of you or was in the writing that supposedly triggered this is much, much, much less important than the fact that like Tucker Carlson is ginning up a culture war every single night, finding a woman that he thinks he can say is like privileged or incompetent or loathsome or ugly to attack is like part of the game for him. And it just doesn't have that much to do with me. Like just because the, you know, the piece on his monopoly board has something like my face and and my name and that he's saying those things over and over again doesn't have that much to do with me in space it's like you know an amazing caricature and as much as my boyfriend who is like a home restorer who has a plow who had shoveled the driveway like shoveled um was like oh my god he said you were incompetent this overlooks like his his criticism of the piece was that it made it look like we couldn't plow our own driveway and he loves the neighbor because the guy's really competent and they do all the stuff but if i even listen to why aren't liberals able to do anything then you start to think there's content to these campaigns instead of just a particular memes and language like in this case the word content the word loathsome turned up over and over again among trolls the trolling originated in all these interesting places on the web and you can track that now and it's meant to make you feel like you're in a cloud of hatred you can walk around during one of these campaigns i'm sure you've had this and you're just like i am walking around and like this heel and everybody hates me and they're coming at me that is if it's successful it gets you back on your heels and it gets you saying oh i did something wrong in that column or worse I'm so swashbuckling. I did something right that I hit a nerve. Either of those things are just ridiculous. Like you were doing your job and then you fell in the sights of these campaigns. The best people who handled this situation for me when I was doxxed following the Tucker thing and got some threats to my house were the local police. And here's why. You tell a journalist friend, oh my God, I'm getting trolled so badly this week. And Tucker Carlson called me out. What did you write? Is the first response. Mm -hmm. You call the police and you say, I'm getting death threats and hate mail and people saying they're going to come to my house and whatever. And they say, okay, 
let's go over and look at what your car looks like, what your house looks like and meet you. So we know where you are and we can drive by your house on this regular basis. What time did they say they'd come? They never say, what did you do? Any more than if you called and said you had an ex-girlfriend threatening you. They're not gonna be like, oh, you must've really jilted her badly. They just are like, oh, let's protect you. And you know, one step further, is this an FBI matter where we find the source? So I have gotten tired of the condolences and even the gender analysis and very interested in where the domestic terrorism task force that Biden has set up that's very interesting has an online division. And a lot of these campaigns flow back to Oath Keepers, flow back to people responsible, the white supremacist groups responsible for Charlottesville, responsible for January 6th. And like, how great if we could break the backs of them instead of like crying about our own online wounds. So um, about four years ago, I, I was at a gym. I was on the treadmill, always a worse place to tweet. And <laughs> do it all the time though. Yep, sure. Uh, and I'm at the gym. I'm on, I know I'm on the Stairmaster, not the treadmill. And I'm watching Fox News is on. I don't watch Fox News, but Fox News is on. And it's Gerardo Rivera surrounded two women on each side all wearing skirts about this long, right? And I wrote a tweet. I think I wrote, why does Fox News make all the women dress like hookers? Yeah. <sighs> nonstop, blah, 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 liberal journalists, liberal sports, nonstop, nonstop. And I had to put it away. And the one thing I think it is hard to remember that I've learned from my limited experience, which is not as intense as your experience of getting docs, is the stuff feels a lot more permanent than it actually is. Like someone yes. sees that I wrote it and they fire off a tweet and then they're back making their cookies or watching a sporting event or shoveling the snow or going yeah. off to Target or whatever. Like it's right. not a permanent thing for them. It's a very fleeting right. reaction, but you see it sitting there and you scroll and you see it there. And I feel like yeah. you take it oftentimes, I'm not saying all the time, more to heart than the people actually writing the go fuck yourself tweet to you. Yeah, that yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And also they they only have their your name in their heads for like a minute. I mean, that was the right. That was something interesting when things moved online. Cause when I was just in the newspaper, primarily in the newspaper, people had like a Virginia Heffernan set of thoughts like they do about uh, Maureen Dowd or like some of the old columnists, Thomas Friedman. Mm -hmm. but, um, but when it shifted to be more online, it became disaggregated into memes. So like they had no idea what I had written before what, what, no idea what my, you know, anything, any other moral political commitments I had. It was just doesn't like her neighbor who plowed the driveway or whatever. Can't can't see past political differences to just say thank you. And the fact that it like I got Norwegian trolls and like anywhere where there was snow, people could get their heads around this particular cartoon. And that really makes it feel like it has nothing to do with you. Like, right. and in your case, those people who like chipped off their, you're a liberal dick. I'm surprised you didn't get feminists being like, they're sex workers, please. Or like sex workers no longer wear short skirts or whatever. Right. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, and then you know you're, you've been made a meme. All right, so you never know where this podcast is gonna go. And I actually, I've really enjoyed this. You are a successful journalist who tweets a lot and mm -hmm. I wish I tweeted less. In fact, since the election, I've tweeted a lot less because mm -hmm. there's not as much to get angry about. I had a, a very, 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 very 
great baseball writer on named Tom Berducci, who a bunch of weeks ago on this podcast. And I said, mm-hmm. he's not on Twitter. I said, why aren't you on Twitter? Mm-hmm. And he said, mm-hmm. because no one has given me a reason that it'll make me any happier. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. I think that's a fair argument. Like, I don't think Twitter makes people very happy. Are you actually mm-hmm. happy on Twitter? I am, but I so long ago realized that other people's experience of the internet at least as they describe it and as it lands for them is just everyone's is so different it might, it's like describing it's like what what um thinking fast thinking slow says about brains that we like we have to keep before us that every brain is so different from every other brain so acknowledging that there's nothing intrinsically good or evil about twitter i will say that for me it's introduced me to a range of people geographically, uh, uh, but also, you know, of competing traditions of eth- that are just voices, some people that I just follow to just be mesmerized by like what direction they might, they might take their Twitter feed. And if I don't see it as like a winning and losing game, as my kids used to call it, like it's something that's about like, you know, nailing the point exactly, but more like something that's really something that's good for quips. And it's good for kind of open-ended explorations of things. I mean, you can you can step in problems, you know, with people. But I mean, today, for instance, okay, so I like that. And I like the pressure it put on me to be concise and to be responsive to various voices that are new to me, you know? I mean, I follow really widely and I like the pressure, honestly. I mean, the the thing is, I went to graduate school. I like a seminar where people are kind of telling you you're an idiot and where I like the stakes feel high, even though they're not. I just like that. It feels like a workout. It feels just like a brainy workout. And I also gave up on every other form of social media. And then one last thing that I like about Twitter is how far your avatar is on Twitter, how far it is from real you where like Facebook tries to make them the same. And I feel that's like uncanny. Like if I'm me by my name with my kids, with whatever and pictures and and Instagram, I'm kind of more sickeningly aware of the gap between the like, let's see, the small gap, you know, like the uncanny valley thing. Like it it looks like, starts to look like the Polar Express guy, like kind of like a kid, but not. Where like to me, Twitter is like a teddy bear. It's so dopey and silly with the tweets and the birds and the people using weird names and like different styles of memes that it does, I don't quite mistake it for real life. And that makes it more of a fun game. And I like the anthropology of it. For instance, Gary Kasparov and um, Tumas Ilves, and you know, this is more than humble bragging, it's just overt self-advertisement. But the former president of Estonia and chess champion uh, Gary Kasparov both follow me on Twitter. What, 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 and double what? How am I ever, how is like a dork like me from New Hampshire ever gonna meet the former president of Estonia? What does the former president of Estonia look like? What does he think about? What does he do? What does he talk about? When he, you know, jokes about uh, American popular culture, what angle is he taking? Where is Estonia? Like all those things in that one little follower. And I guess that doesn't make some people as happy as it makes me. But, you know, the fact that like Winston Churchill's grandson, Nicholas Soames, just if you want to follow him on Twitter, there it is. Better than Netflix. 
I just think it's interesting. It seems, 15 minutes ago yeah. on your Twitter feed, you wrote on this annoying oh, no. podcast with some douchebag sports writer. Hope he doesn't see this. <laughs> I just think maybe you're not using Twitter that well. I just say. <laughs> this is while we were talking. Yeah, I've had people a lot of times on my podcast tweet while we're talking and I'm just like, oh no. Um, yeah, I didn't do that. Just so everyone knows that was not something that happened. I'm totally happy for people who don't like social media. I've never really gotten the hang of Instagram and my brain has stopped now. Like I'm not get, gonna get TikTok, I had to admit to myself. And Snapchat was the first one that I was like, no. I gave Pinterest a shot and I just don't think I'm gonna do Snapchat. How about that? Twitter's for a certain middle-aged now person. It just totally makes sense. One thing that's been happening over the past five months that has been very frustrating to me is my daughter, who's a high school senior, she's not on Twitter, but she always looks at my Twitter feed every day. And she'll be like, oh. dad, dad, I saw you tweeted that so-and-so is an asshole. And I'm like, uh, sorry. I tweeted a screenshot of an um, April Fool's Day back and forth between me and my son where I told him the blockchain had crashed and tried to see if he would bite. And um, he didn't really, but it was like kind of a funny exchange. So just so I like screenshot it and put it up on Twitter. And my son's a Luddite, not on Twitter, but, um, and wouldn't like that I'm even talking about him right now, but a friend of his saw it and I'm still paying for it. That's awesome. Like he was just like, that is a private communication. You can't do that. That's a violation. I've had that happen so many times where I'll be like, oh, I'm just going to put a Facebook conversation, a thing. And I don't use yes. the name of the person. I don't use a name, but I'll be like, of look course. at this from my high school. You might not have gotten what you wanted on this, but this is like the encounter group of two that I apparently have needed because yeah, that we probably do need to like get quiet as they say and meditate on our need to like expose ourselves and our friends. But I can sum it up in one sentence, which is what my wife always says to me. Do you really need to share everything? Yeah, there's a whole like, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said now? Does it need to be said by me? So much like, I, and do I go through those now? I was actually going to jump on something today that I'm glad I stayed away from. Um, so journalism though, do, have we touched on anything that- I have one, I actually have even, I only have one final question because this is one, this yeah. has actually been one of my favorite conversations I've ever had in this podcast. And it's more fun than just yeah. delving deep in articles, but I do have a question I was wondering about. Okay. So you and I, we're both in the same age range. Um, you graduated mm -hmm. a couple of years before me but not many. Mm, wait, so you're, what you're saying is you're younger than I am and that's I'm fine. I'm saying I'm 49 and you're and probably 52, 51. I'm 51 and uh, I'm young at heart. Here's my question, because I struggle with this. I've never asked another guest this. Okay. I am starting to struggle a little bit with my journalism mortality. And what I mean is mm. that I think, holy shit, I graduated college in 1994. That's 27 years ago. 27 years from now, I'm blank. And also like, probably like you to, to probably have similar experiences, at least to a certain degree, you come up and you're young and you're kind of a hot shot. And at some point you have that moment where everyone's like, wow, he, she, she's really good for 20, whatever. And you have that first piece in the New York times or sports illustrated and you feel like the shit. Yeah. And then there comes a point where like different technologies come along. You mentioned Snapchat, you know, whatever, TikTok. Yeah. Like, nah, I don't, I don't really think so. And there's some young yeah. asshole who's the new hot blank and you're not, and you can't yeah. be ever again. 
Yeah. I struggle with this. I actually genuinely struggle with this. Do you at all? Yeah. Are you like, I yeah. don't even know what you're talking about? No, I, I absolutely do. I mean, I, I'm stalling a little bit, but I want to tell you a story that I've also never told, which is that I, um, so when I was early on in New York, when I was fact checking, I fact checking at the New Yorker, or no, I wasn't, I was working at a mag, abs, uh, out of business magazine called Talk. Do you remember it at all? It was Tina Brown's and Harvey Weinstein's adventure. Um, Harvey Weinstein, the great film producer, you may yeah. remember him. Uh, but anyway, so they, I was at this magazine called Talk and I didn't have any money for like an expensive therapist. So I found like a social worker and I really liked her. And, you know, we just talked about my problems. But one of the things I droned on about was Tina Brown, my boss. So probably some listeners don't know who she is, but she was like, took up all my vision. I mean, she was, you know, all the editors when we were coming up that were like, that nobody knows now, but like, you know, Art Cooper, right? At, the, at GQ, you'd be like, that's Art. <laughs> and, you know, whatever. So Tina Brown was one of those, that's Tina Brown, always in, always in the, uh, in the gossip pages and whatever else. So I was droning on nonstop about Tina Brown and how intimidating she was and how exciting and what a mentor and what a not mentor she was. And my therapist went out of town for August and came back and said, all right, so let's get back to talking about your supervisor. Stephanie, is it? And I, <laughs> I mean, you see where I'm going with this. I was like, this person is a god among women and you are like think she's just my supervisor like i could you know i could be working at the limited and she is my supervisor and then i thought that's exactly right everybody comes in here year after year and talks about their mother or their employer whatever like they're the most important person in the world and the therapist just has like important woman figure blank faceless stephanie over there and now it's the same when I sort of talk about like, you know, like, okay, so Sports Illustrated, perfect example, talk, perfect example, um, you know, some of the defunct newspapers, like uh, what went out of it, like Glamour magazine used to carry Condé Nast. It was everything. It was their profit center. You publish something in Glamour and you were like, I'm part of the money team, you know? And Glamour, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like a quarterly that is like the size of two pieces of paper together now. It just barely exists. And so like you say something, something Glamour magazine to talk about like a strategy with some young people. And like, you, you just start talking about like a bowl of dirt that like just says it's so uncompelling. In fact, I'm pitching a podcast right now. And I was like, I speaking of your mother and TV, uh, they were talking about my reach, right? Like, how many followers and whatever I have. And I said, you know, I have this good relationship with um, Morning Joe and, you know, a couple other MSNBC shows. And, um, and the person was like, kind of looked at me blankly, podcast person, and was like, that could be good for older listeners. But let's talk about it. <laughs> I was like, but I thought MSNBC was so cool and whatever. And they were like, cable news, not so much, you know? Yeah. No, no one really watches cable news. How long do you think you have keeping up with like, what's barstool sports or like sports crossing over with new things or like we probably think yeah i don't know i just need books to survive as long as books are okay i'm okay. you're you're fine okay. i think books are i think books are books are safe they're so persistent and cockroachy from the roman empire or torah scrolls to today i love what you just said though about tina brown because i remember um 
<laughs> I would walk through the halls of Sports Illustrated and he'd be like, whoa, name, whoa, name, whoa, name, big name, big name, big name. And like, yeah, I've had some of those people ask me to blurb for them. That's not a brag thing. I mean, like you realize yeah. that like those people you saw at age 25, like it's basically the, the De Gaulle quote, the cemeteries are filled with irreplaceable men. Oh uh, yeah. Super fleeting. I know that's right. And especially like if you're writing online, if you're writing podcasts, if you're right, if you're doing podcasts, like they really are, they're like Dogecoin. There's another, like, I guess since we're getting deep and talking about death, there's another awesome John Keats thing, which is his epitaph on his gravestone. It says, here lies one whose name was writ on water. And I feel like our wow. names are written on water on the internet. Like that's what, the, you know, and water, while it doesn't have our, our, you know, big ego projects emblazoned on it is also like an incredible force and it's itself irreplaceable yeah. so ideally we feel that we're like participating in the flow of existence even if our ego projects are destined to disappear damn that was both deep and depressing <laughs> uh, i gotta say i love your writing love your style you. have loved this conversation uh, so good I appreciate your time. I wish this were a seven-hour podcast. Thank you. This was really fun. I want to thank today's guest, Virginia Heffernan, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Virginia on Twitter at Page88 and subscribe to her podcast, After Trump, wherever one subscribes to podcasts. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slinging Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make no money for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the terrific MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>